0: Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike Young, your host, and this podcast we chat with Lord Tebbit about flying the Meteor and Vampire with the RAF, and also his time with BOAC. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can also donate by going to aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. So Lord Tebbit, when did you first become interested in aviation?
1: Well, as a kid, I think, really, um, uh, I was born in 1931. So uh, when I was in London, um, <laughs> during the war, uh, you got terribly interested in aviation because people were bombing you and <laughs> you were cheering for the blokes that were shooting them down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what year did you join the RAF?
1: Uh, I was caught up when I was 18, 1949, and um, <clears throat> uh, the... The first Labour government after the war, uh, Attlee and Bevin, had uh, concluded that Churchill had been right, that the Soviet Union was a menace, and they did three things. They founded NATO, uh, authorised British nuclear weapons, and decided that we should rebuild our reserves since we almost lost the Battle of Britain by running out of pilots as opposed to aeroplanes. Um, But for the Poles, we might well have done so. Um, And um, uh, so they decided that they would train national servicemen as pilots to be released to serve in the active reserves. And I was one of the first couple of hundred blokes um, in that uh, scheme.
0: So can you tell us some of the aircraft you started training on?
1: Well, started to train on the Prentice, which was a not a terribly good primary trainer. it was um rather ugly um uh side by side seating, which was one advantage with your instructor um but it it wasn't a responsive aeroplane really uh but then a hundred hours of that, and onto the Harvard, which of course was everything that a trainer should be yeah and um it was perfect for people who were going to go on to fly the uh single seat piston engine fighters of the second world war the uh, hurricane and the spitfire and it it was a it was a handful to fly
0: so after that where did you go to what what aircraft were you assigned to
1: uh, well from having got my wings in uh, 1950 yes end of 1950 um i was posted off to uh uh do a training conversion uh, onto meteors up at Driffield in Yorkshire and then uh, having mastered the uh, meteor which was quite sensational in that day, it did hold the world's airspeed record at that time Um, we came down to Stradishall uh, in uh, East Anglia uh, to learn the art of fighting with the aeroplane and as I Constantly remind my squeamish colleagues in the House of Lords who (laughs) go on about awful war crimes of shooting people in the back as they're running away and things like that. The art of a fighter pilot was to shoot his enemy in the back, even if he's running away out of ammunition. (laughs) Uh, You don't give them a chance to come back the following day (laughs) and kill more people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So was the meteor designed strictly for air-to-air?
1: Primarily, it was an air-to-air fighter. Uh, we could carry uh, bombs and rockets, of course, and we did quite a bit of uh, training for ground attack, but um, uh, that was a secondary role. Um, we, were, we were day fighters, essentially. Um, we uh, uh, were designed to meet the enemy fighters or bombers and uh, get stuck in with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ground attack was fun. You know, training for it was fun because there was nobody shooting back at you. It might have been less fun if, a, if they were shooting back. Um, so you had a general rule of once and fast. Uh, uh,
0: Could you tell us a bit about your ground training on the Meteor and what did it entail?
1: Well, you had to be conversant with the aeroplane. That was the great thing, to know its details, its uh, potential performance, the, problems that you could get into, um, it was not extensive, you very rapidly uh, got stuck into training to fly the machine and then to fight the machine.
0: Were the uh, systems complicated to learn going from a piston engine to a jet engine?
1: Well in some ways less complicated. You'd got a thrust lever to control the power and that was that, Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas um, flying the Harvard you'd got both the throttle Um, and the pitch to control the pitch of the uh, propeller. So you've got one control less. Um, So it was simple and clean. Mm -hmm. The snack to the early meteors, the 4s and the 8s, was that the instrumentation was uh, basically what you would have found in a hurricane or spitfire in 1938. Wow. It hadn't improved at all. Um and that could lead you astray um in instrument flight because you could topple the artificial horizon and then be back relying on the primary instruments, airspeed, turn and bank, altimeter. Um and that that's quite a challenge. And in fact, uh, uh during our during my time on the squadron, uh, on six oh four uh, we had a Meteor 7, the trainer, and um, we used to take each other up uh, to renew our uh, familiarity with extreme attitudes on instruments. And uh, you, the safety pilot would be in the front, the guy under training, or whatever you like to call it, uh, in the back with the rear cockpit completely blacked out, so you couldn't see anything out of the rear cockpit. And uh, your friend uh, would then uh, suddenly uh, put the aeroplane into a, shall we say, an unnatural attitude um, and say, It's all yours, recover. Um, <laughs> so it would be perhaps inverted in a steep turn approaching the stall, something <laughs> of that kind. So there was, um, you know, a bit, of, a bit of challenging flying there. I can imagine. Uh, it might have been of great help to those poor devils in the Air France aircraft, mm-hmm. which went down, lost everybody on board uh, off the west coast of South America some years ago because there was nothing wrong with the aeroplane. It's just they didn't recognise the attitude into which it had got.
0: Could you tell us what the meteor was actually like to handle?
1: Handling the meteor was... Um fine um, you could have problems if you were on one engine um, and uh, particularly at low speeds um, so single engine landings uh, or practicing loss of an engine immediately after takeoff was was quite a challenge. Um, but that apart, it was very simple to fly uh, you went as fast as you could. Um, low level, that was about four eighty, approaching five hundred knots according to the temperature. Um, uh, at altitude you were then governed by the mark number. Um, I think officially 0.77 or 0.78. Um, and beyond that, uh, it gradually started bucking and rolling. And if you pushed it hard enough it would roll on its back in a sort of fairly uh, hairy sort of manoeuvre and uh, plummet downwards. And as you got into warmer air, of course, the Mach number fell mm-hmm. and you regained control. Mm-hmm.
0: So what kind of ammunition would you carry? Uh,
1: well, the armament, primary arm, armament was four 20-millimeter guns. And um, uh, you had in a bay just behind you, I think it was uh, about 600 rounds, of twenty millimetre uh, cannon, um, I think there were versions, ground attack versions, which uh, carried a, a heavier gun in the nose, forward of the pilot's feet, for attacking ground targets.
0: Mm-hmm. And going back a bit, can you actually remember your first flight in a Meteor?
1: Yes, I can. Um, uh, they, you know, line up on the runway at uh, Driffield. Uh, with my instructor in, in the rear seat, in the front seat, and uh, full bores and let the brakes off down the runway. Incredible acceleration compared with a Harvard or something of that kind. And then uh, uh, just over 100 knots, you were beginning to raise the nose wheel and uh, about 115 knots, she would come off, uh, keep it down, don't climb too s- swiftly. Uh, 125 knots, I think it was, f- flaps in, and then keep holding it down until 480 knots, and then the initial climb speed was 480, uh, and that would fall off with altitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, quite a shaker to watch people going off in these things, uh, holding down and down and down, and then suddenly up, and you're looking at virtually a plain view of the airplane as it was going up. Yeah. Um, and it's all pretty calm stuff compared with a Jaguar or something of that kind yeah. um, or even more the uh, sort of aeroplanes which we're buying now. But then I think a meteor was said in money of the day to cost about £30,000. Really? Um, these things these days, about £15 million.
0: <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so how many aircraft did you have on your first operational squadron?
1: Um, the squadron... Uh, was nominally 12 aircraft uh um plus a a training a, a, a 7 so you would normally have 10 aircraft serviceable for a scramble and um that that would uh that that would give a decent flight of aircraft and you would take off in pairs um so you were, number 2 was tucked right into number 1 uh sort of rather an unfamiliar sight these days on the runway.
0: So what kind of flying would you conduct on a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, a lot of it would be practice interceptions, things of that kind, Um, and sometimes big formations, sometimes just pairs. Uh, What was particular fun uh, was what was called um, uh, rat and terrier exercises. And um, the terriers were guys coming in across the North Sea at very low level to stay below the radar. The radar didn't have the capacity in those days it does now. And they wouldn't be seen until they crossed the coast by uh, Royal Observer Corps blokes. And um then the ROC people, or radar if they'd got any sign of the rat, uh, would be broadcasting... Uh, reports of where the rats were running and it was up to you to assess the track that they were on probably following a line feature a road or a river or railway and to intercept Um, the rats were not supposed to fly below 200 feet but of course they did and uh, nor were the terriers but of course we had to in order to see the rat against the background of the sky, which was easier than against the background of the ground. And, um, I was reminded, uh, a little while ago, um, of a memorable rat and terrier exercise, uh, which, uh, a colleague and I performed, uh, which took us straight across the center of London at 200 feet. Um, with a sudden cry of Christ Buckingham Palace (laughs) and a very sharp turn. (laughs) But all those things were accepted because memories of what we had to do during the Second World War were very close. And we also had um, big exercise uh, every year, the um, defence of Great Britain. And uh, the Americans came in Flying super fortresses. Um, the Russians had replicas of the super forts. Um, and uh, they would come in across the North Sea, 30 odd thousand feet, um, perhaps two, three hundred or more aircraft. Um, and uh, we would be vectored out towards them, uh, hoping we were same level. Approaching them, so the closing speed was well over a thousand miles an hour. And uh, uh, it wasn't too bad if they were leaving contrails, but if not, uh, your eyes were out on stalks looking for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first wing to attack, first meteor wing to attack, and a wing would generally be three squadrons, so 30 odd aeroplanes would be spread out in line abreast would be to attack head on every shell that hit would go the length of the enemy he would have less guns to bear on you so you went straight that um, head on and either under or over at the last moment according to um one's preference Mm -hmm. uh that could be a bit fine sometimes and the americans did object a bit sometimes about it Mm (laughs) uh one wonderful Polish pilot actually lost the pitot head of his aircraft uh, as he went through the propeller arc uh, <laughs> of, of, of the, of the superfort. Um, things like that were taken as part of the hazards yeah. of the game. Again, still the atmosphere of the Second World War.
0: So restrictions were a bit more lax back then, I suppose.
1: Well, not so much lax, but you had to do what you had to do. Yeah. And of course, as you went through that formation, there were aeroplanes everywhere, and a few seconds later, you'd be looking around where the hell's everybody gone? <laughs> uh, um, the second wing to approach would normally, if they could, get above the formation of super fortresses, and as they came over the top, roll onto their back, pull through, and go down vertically through the formation. Again, to give the gunners least chance of uh, hitting back. Mm-hmm. All all quite exciting. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. So what marks of meteor were um, available at that time?
1: Uh, well, we were flying Meteor 8s, mm-hmm. uh, which, say, was probably the largest number of meteors produced for the 8s. A mm-hmm. um, uh, fair number of 9s, which was a ground attack, aircraft were produced, and then I think it was the 14, which was the night fighter. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, that became quite specialist because they'd got early radar on board and uh, you needed a radar operator.
0: Mm -hmm. And you also had a pretty exciting (laughs) mid-air collision, didn't you? Could you talk us through this?
1: (laughs) Yes, uh, in a way that was my own fault because um, We were air-to-air firing um, off the east coast um, about 50 miles out and uh, the form was that uh, there was a meteor towing a drogue target about 200 yards behind him Um, and the two meteors, uh, you and your number two, would be doing a series of attacks on it. Uh, So you would be sitting out 400 yards or so away and a couple hundred feet higher. Um, and then turn in at the right moment and on a curved pursuit. And as you got into range, you should be at about 30 degrees angle off and you could have a squirt at the flag target. Um, and then you'd break away and pull up to reposition for the next attack. My fault, weather was not very good. I should have scrubbed it and returned home, but we didn't like to do that. And um, so I made my attack and pulled up, and uh, that was that. And then as my number two was making his attack, we ran into cloud. And uh, so he aborted the attack, uh, turned onto a parallel course on instruments, stabilized, looked out to see if he could see where I was, um, and as he put it afterwards, there I saw in front of me the biggest effing meter I'd ever seen in my life. Um, and uh, the next moment he hit me as he tried to go underneath. Uh, and um, I looked out to see the biggest meter I'd ever seen in my life appearing from under my starboard wing. <laughs> the top of his tail fin was still crumbling as he went past and um, he was in a descent and I remember shouting to him, if you haven't got control, bail out, because the Meteor's rear fuselage was a bit a bit fragile. You could tear it off in an unorthodox manoeuvre. Mm-hmm. Um, but he got control, and uh, we both headed back to home. And uh, as we approached the east coast, um, uh, Bing, my number two, called me up and said, uh, got you in sight, shall I rejoin formation? And I remember, because I was still feeling slightly tender, I, I said, you don't come within miles of me again ever, <laughs> which amused those who were listening into the conversation. We both got back, and um, with minor amount of damage.
0: <laughs> Sounds very, um, yeah, exhilarating, let's put it that way. <laughs> so was the Meteor a comfortable cockpit to work in?
1: Um it wasn't uncomfortable uh you sat uh on your parachute pack um, you got a so you sat on your dinghy pack uh, with a parachute on on your back in a bay in the seat um, but then you were only sitting on it for a maximum of an hour forty five really um, that was the extreme long range when you've got wing tanks on as well as a belly tank mm-hmm. and um, so it wasn't too bad mm-hmm. uh, we took the squadron a couple of times down to Malta um, for a, a summer exercise when we made sure that although we were only part-timers that we were fully up to standard and um, that was from North Weald to uh, the south coast of France, uh, to, um, I can't remember the name of the airfield now, uh, about an hour 45, and then another hour 45 after refuelling, on down to Malta. Mm-hmm.
0: So how long did you spend on meteors, and did you enjoy your time on it?
1: Oh, it's a f- fabulously good time. Um, I suppose, all told, I flew for five or six years. Well, um, when I... Uh, had completed my training um, in the Royal Air Force and was ready to join a squadron. Um, i joined the after a brief interval in the v r flying chipmunks, which was terribly boring after <laughs> after meteors, um I got onto to a six hundred four county Middlesex squadron and there uh, they were still equipped with vampires and um, so i didn 't fly many hours on them. Uh, Uh, before the squadron was re-equipped with the meteor. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Vampire was a a nice aeroplane to fly, a fun aeroplane to fly, but uh, was very much underpowered. Mm -hmm. So um, it was not up to meeting uh, with the sort of aircraft which either the Russians or the Americans were flying at that time. Mm -hmm. The the Vampire um, was in a number of guises. It came as a, a... Night fighter. Um, It came after my day as a two-seat trainer. There was a side-by-side version of it. Uh, But it was really an air-to-air fighter, and it relied on its manoeuvrability for that because it hadn't got the speed um, uh, or the acceleration which the more modern aircraft... uh, the sabre coming into service in the United States, for example.
0: So how did the, the vampire fare in a dogfight, let's say, against the meat? Ah, well,
1: in, in the dogfight, the vampire had only got one ultimate weapon, which was uh, if you'd got somebody behind you intent on mischief, you pulled it harder and harder into a steep turn. And there was a moment when the vampire would flick uh, very suddenly and sharply uh, No other aircraft could follow that. So with a bit of luck, your enemy would lose sight of you and you you would dart away.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So how long did you fly vampires for?
1: Only a few months. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I got less than 50 hours on vampires in my logbook. I was tempted. Uh, One of my chums with whom I'd trained had uh, um, joined BOAC, And uh, it was rather more money than I was earning um, working in London. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought about it, and it sounded more fun. And so I followed his example and uh, joined BOAC, Mm -hmm. where, of course, um, uh, being a nationalised industry, they did everything in a rather complicated manner. (laughs) And um, they had decreed that all their old navigators, specialist navigators, should be dual qualified as pilots and all their new pilots coming in should be dual qualified as navigators. Mm-hmm. So I started off doing a navigators course, which was an intellectual challenge. Um, I'm not sure how many kids leaving school now at 16 would have been able to cope with it.
0: I very much doubt it um,
1: these days. <laughs> Spherical trig, uh, theory of navigation um, uh, with a set of... Log tables. Um, Log tables? What's a log table? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And um, uh, so that was pretty interesting.
0: Can you tell us some of the aircraft you flew with then?
1: Well, um, in BOAC, first of all, the York as a a navigator. And by then, the York in BOAC was restricted to being a freighter. And it was very good as a freighter, particularly through areas where they hadn't got complex handling equipment because of the very low level of the floor. Uh, you could manhandle with a lot of local labour quite heavy things into the aircraft. Um, and uh, so we were flying mostly uh, African and uh, Far Eastern routes with that. The snag to it was that um, the Merlin, was, de- which it had four Merlins, the Merlin was designed as a fighter aircraft engine, and in temperate climates, liquid cooled. So if you were flying a, a York in the Far East, in hot climates, um, slowly, uh, you did have quite a problem with overheating engines and um, quite a lot of engine failure. So, It was uh, not unusual to finish up on three engines and uh, uh, on memorable occasions Two engines <laughs> I had some interesting experiences on it though um, uh, one was coming across the Sahara from uh, West Africa up to Tripoli North Africa on our way home and um, in the middle of the night because we flew overnight to take advantage of Astro as the Sahara is pretty featureless and the topographical maps were pretty poor mm-hmm. um, uh, in the middle of the night there was a sort of thump and uh, Everybody looked at each other, what was that? And um, we switched on the wing floodlights and I got up in the Astrodome and looked out, couldn't see anything. And then one of the engines started to overheat. And uh, when we arrived at uh, Tripoli, uh, we called up ahead to say that we'd got a problem of overheating on one of the engines. And uh, the ground engineers got straight up to it and uh, came up to the flight deck bearing a duck, or the remains of a duck, (laughs) which had been flying its way across the Sahara and unfortunately uh, had met up with us. (laughs) Until then, everybody had assumed that these ducks on their migratory flights would go round the the west coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we sent the uh, feathers on to uh, Slimbridge um, to the research station there, uh, where they realised for the first time that that's what ducks do. Wow, so a bit of a scientific yes, discovery. Yes, yes. Uh, I'll come back to another moment, well, I'll say now to it one day about uh, biological discoveries on aircraft. Um, we were flying a 707 up uh, from uh, somewhere uh, down. Uh, at the in in Saudi somewhere i think it was and we were coming up to the uh, uh no it couldn't have been Saudi we were coming up anyway to the abyssinian highlands and um there were very very strong northerly winds and we were heading north uh, and uh skipper and i were sitting there quietly in the sunshine um drifting our way along and uh, suddenly we found ourselves looking at each other. And um, uh, Mike, the skipper, said to me, no, uh, did you see anything? So I said, uh, yes, I did. Uh, said, he said, what did you think you saw? So I said, well, what about you? He said, well, how about a skein of geese? And we were at twenty six, twenty seven thousand 27,000 feet. Wow. And these guys were on their migratory flight. But, of course, they had climbed as high as they could to get the benefit of the tailwind. Yeah. And until then, nobody knew that geese flew at those sort of altitudes.
0: You did not even know that to this day. <laughs> wow. um,
1: but um, that was a bit into the future. So I flew the York as a navigator, and then I flew the Argonaut, which was a DC-4, uh, Douglas DC-4 with Merlin engines, um as both co-pilot and navigator and um that was quite an interesting aeroplane to fly to um again with all the virtues and um snags of uh the um liquid-cooled engine but much faster mm-hmm. than the York mm-hmm. and then from that I went on to the Britannia uh and um that was suddenly another new experience with um, gas turbine engines, so smoother, quieter, less vibration, more reliable, um, but of course considerably more thirsty, Mm -hmm. so you were carrying a much greater fuel load. And um, we, on those ones which I was flying, the 100 series, were on Africa and Far Eastern routes. Uh, Later came the 300 series, which had enough range to do the North Atlantic, Um, uh, I went from the Britannia knowing that I was destined to go on to the 707 when they arrived and um, so as an interim went on to the DC-7C which was Douglas aircraft, big piston engines immensely complicated piston engines but very, very economical on fuel and that was the first passenger aircraft which you could rely upon every night of the year that you could get across the Atlantic uh, non-stop to New York. Um, sometimes you were flying high up into the 20,000s, sometimes lower. And uh, one memorable flight we did at about six, 7,000 feet across to get out of the very high headwinds and... Uh, on arrival at uh, new york uh, we were covered in salt from <laughs> salt spray up to that altitude um in the in the storms that we flew through wow. um, and uh then on the seven o seven which in a way was like coming home to be on a jet again yeah. and um, it was a surprisingly maneuverable aircraft um there were those who ascribed nasty characteristics to it, but handled properly. The 707 was a gentleman's aeroplane. Yeah. It it really was, and made a huge difference. Suddenly, above the weather most of the time, mm-hmm. um, and uh, much, much faster. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was interesting. And, um, of course, then BOAC decided that they would start a round-the-world route with the 707. Uh, It was, of course, marginal on range across the Pacific. You know, as kids, we were all brought up on Mercator's projections of the world in our atlases. Um, And uh, you looked at uh, the pages for Europe and America and there was this big ocean in between and then you looked over the page and really the way it was done the Pacific didn't look very big but it's a very very big (laughs) ocean and there's not much in it apart from water Um, uh, and so the route was from San Francisco to Honolulu in Hawaii and um, then from there uh, to Tokyo and it's a long way. There's only one possible diversion, and that's a long way off track, Wake Island. Um, we did go into Wake Island once, and uh, the runway in Wake I- at Wake Island is longer than the island. It sticks out both sides. <laughs> um, uh, so, and the wind's very strong, very poorly forecast. There's only one weather ship. And of course, no satellites um, uh, between uh, Hawaii and Tokyo. I think the shortest trip I did southbound was about six and a half hours. The longest trip northbound, about 10 hours. Um, And if you were in cloud for any long period and unable to do astro, of course, you were liable to get Surprises when you finally got an astro fix. Yeah. It happened to me one night out of um, uh, Tokyo and we were in cloud for some time and finally it cleared and so I hopped up to the uh, sextant and the technique was that you would pre-compute your fix from an assumed position and so you would know the bearing and the elevation of the stars that you were going to use approximately. Mm -hmm. And if you were more towards that star, uh, then the elevation would be higher and vice versa. And that's how you got from your assumed position to your actual position. I hopped up there and firing away the stars. And uh, I realized something was a bit odd down to the nav table, plotted my fix, and we were several hundred miles off track. (laughs) Um, Well, there could be an explanation for that, of course. I could have made a mistake in the calculation. I could have looked at the wrong date in the air almanac. Um, I could have misidentified the stars. So I sat and thought for a moment, decided that, I'd better play it safe and said to the skipper, uh, 40 degrees starboard, skipper. And he said, What the hell's that for? <laughs> you know, because there we were in the middle of the Pacific, 40 degrees is a pretty big mm-hmm. course change. And I said, Because if that fix was right and we don't, we're going to miss Hawaii. <laughs> 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 and rapidly as, as I could, calculated another. Um, fix up to the sextant, and I'd been right. <laughs> oh. It's a great relief that I was <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so it was it was a very challenging and interesting place, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it did have its upside, however, because the BIC management, knowing of the potential dangers and difficulties decided that they would put a group of very experienced crews on base in Hawaii uh, for the initial stages of the route, uh approving the route. And uh, I was one of the crews sent out there. It was pretty hard-lying, and we had to negotiate with the management to compensate us so we took our families, <laughs> and it was November, so yeah. it was rather nice to be away from an English winter. <laughs> and I had a toddler and a newborn babe, and yeah. they spent their early years uh, on the beach at Honolulu. What a, what a start to life.
0: <laughs> very, very nice indeed. So was a 707 a reliable aircraft?
1: 707 was exceptionally reliable. Of course, there was not much on it to go wrong. There was not a single computer on the aeroplane. Mm-hmm. Um, we hadn't got those in those days. Uh, we could have done with them, but <laughs> um, so it it was all down to the navigator.
0: Mm-hmm. How how many years did you spend on BOAC, and did you have a favourite aircraft?
1: Well, now let me think. I think I joined BOAC in about 1955, something like that, um, with a glorious overlap while I was flying meteors um, as an auxiliary pilot Mm -hmm. uh, and flying as a navigator in uh, BOAC. And uh, I left BOAC in 1970, Mm -hmm. um, when, somewhat to my surprise, I was elected to the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. Um, That had not been the plan. No. (laughs) The plan was that I would fight a safe Labour seat in 1970, do well, and be rewarded with the chance to fight a good, safe Tory seat for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I won the safe Labour seat. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly found myself having to explain to the BOAC management that I was terribly sorry I couldn't, I couldn't go on the trip that they'd rostered <laughs> me for.
0: <laughs> so overall, did you enjoy your flying career?
1: I think I enjoyed it enormously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think flying is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. I worry these days that because uh, nowhere in the world, except possibly Russia, I don't know, um, are there many military pilots being trained, Um, uh, there are fewer and fewer servicemen coming out of the military services to go into civil life. The result is that... um, young men and women, are going to flying schools, commercial schools, to be trained.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Training in the Royal Air Force was a matter of weeding out those who were marginal, only letting through the guys who could really do it. Training in a commercial flying school is getting through everybody because they're paying you money to do so. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're getting less experienced... Less well trained pilots into the seat, mm-hmm. and I suppose the most tragic example of that was the German uh, Wings Airline, uh, where the co pilot was obviously psychologically unsuitable mm-hmm. and deliberately crashed the aeroplane into the Alps. Just
0: going on to a bit of a personal side, Lord and
1: um, do you have any hobbies? Do I have any hobbies? Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. I'm a writer, of course. Um, I shoot. I cook. I published uh, earlier this year, or late last year, um new edition of my book, The Game Cook. Um, uh, so, And I'm kept busy. Uh, my wife is now very, very ill, and um, so I live in a house full of women um, <laughs> who look after her and... Um, so we have to have people looking after her night and day. Right. And uh, that occupies me too. Um, and uh, I've got the hobby of going to the House of Lords too, uh, which keeps me in touch with politics and a lot of my old friends.
0: Do you have a favourite aircraft you've flown?
1: I suppose of all the aircraft I've flown, um, it it must be the Meteor. That, that was my old chum. And... Um, It and I only ever let each other down once. Um, I survived. The aeroplane didn't. (laughs) That's the main thing. (laughs) Um, Yes, and uh, that was a nasty experience, but um, I survived it.
0: Is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown past or present?
1: Oh, I would love to have had a go at the um, uh, Concorde I think that, that would have been terrific, um, but uh, I was denied that. Uh, I did have one flight uh, in a Harrier. Oh, wow. uh, that was for, I think, my 45th birthday present That's when I was invited down to Dunsford to fly the Harrier. And it was a two-seater, of course. They didn't trust me <laughs> that much. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and um, uh, I spent the morning being briefed. And then over lunch, uh, the test pilot looking after me said, you really want to do it? And I said, yep, I really want to do it. And um, he said, OK. Strapped me into the uh, front seat of the Harrier and he was in the back to safety pilot and uh, out onto the end of the runway, line up, full power against the brakes, let the brakes off, down the runway, I think it was about 80 knots, something like that, you pulled the um, thrust lever, uh, the directional thrust lever, back to give you lift you know, off the ground. As your speed builds up, you push that back so that you've got the full thrust taking you forward in the aircraft. The speed is winding up at a terrific rate. And uh, we had a little play with, with that, and amazing steep turns, tight turns that you could do by vectoring the thrust, uh, so that you, uh, reduced your stall speed and tightened and tightened up until, frankly, it was you that was giving up <laughs> rather than the airplane. <laughs> um, and then, uh, for the final treat to the, uh, landing pad in the, in the woods. Um, well, it was my birthday, so it was, uh, end of March and it was a lovely dry day, beautiful weather and uh, I properly briefed over the landing site into the hover at about 100 feet and then gently down, gently down, but somewhere about 40 feet uh, the jet efflux begins to come up and go back into the engine sucked back into the engine and you get rumbles and bubbles and Mm -hmm. You've got to get through that as quickly as possible, down onto the ground after that, so as we hit that, uh, my uh, instructor said, "Get it down now now, get it down." and of course as we came down, it was springtime, a lovely dry day. <laughs> so up came all the leaves <laughs> and we were on instruments for a few moments <laughs> But what an airplane, what yes, an airplane a, to fly.
0: Well, Lord Tebbit, it sounds like you've had a a brilliant career, so I just want to thank you very much for being on the show.
1: Thank you very much indeed.
0: So, Lord Tebbit, you've got a brand new book out. Could you share this with us?
1: Yes, it's uh, The Game Cook. It's actually the second edition, um, enlarged and new recipes and things of that kind. And it sets out to help people understand game cooking and to appreciate it, and uh, follow the recipes. It all arose because uh, some years ago, my butcher, not my present butcher, but some years ago, uh, was selling chickens for rather more than a pheasant or a partridge. And I said to him, for goodness sake, why do people pay more for a rubber-boned chicken than they do for a good, healthy pheasant or partridge. And he said, well, they're afraid of the partridge or pheasant because they think it's going to be difficult to cook. So I said, hmm, I'll put that right. And that produced the game Cook. And this edition is immensely fun because apart from all those glorious things like uh, pheasant normand, not named after me, but Normandy pheasant, uh, apples and cream of pheasant. Oh, my goodness me, what a dish. Uh, my co-author and uh, illustrator, she really my illustrator, Debbie Mason, uh, suggested that we should redefine game to say that it's any animal or fish or bird that you have to chase, shoot, attack, and land. So in here, there are recipes for a vegetarian. Ah, oh, okay. Well, salmon after all. You <laughs> have to chase them, don't you? Crabs, lobsters, <laughs> you yeah. do too. And uh, scallops as well. And uh, Debbie is uh, lives on the coast down in Devon. So when she wants scallops, she doesn't pay 20 or 30 quid a kilo for them in the fishmongers. She slips on to uh, uh uh, her kit, scuba diving kit, out in the boat, over the side, and chases them and catches them. So we <laughs> redefine them as as game.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: there you go. So so it's a it's a great thing. a venison or oh, venison in pastry. Oh, what wonderful recipes there! Um, so many good recipes here.
0: And where can we find the book?
1: I think you'd find this book in any good um bookshop, um and certainly you can find it on the internet uh, on Amazon, uh, and um there it is. That's uh what is it? I've forgotten how much it is now. Fourteen ninety nine. A bargain, I'm sure. A bargain, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> yes. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash interview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.